0: Please, at this time, before before we even begin, bow with me and let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, our Lord, we come before you now asking for your, uh, your special help at this time. We pray, God, that you would open our ears, that you would truly prepare your people to hear your word. Truly remove me, God, and hide me so that only Christ stands, God. Pray, Lord, that we see him today, that we hear him. I pray, God, that whatever your people need, use me, God, to comfort, uplift, strengthen, build up your people. Use this message at this time to preach to me. We thank you, God. We pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Do good by us. Hear our requests. In his name we pray. Amen. 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 We, we, um... (laughs) I want to thank the choir for that song, and um, I thank God for the responsive reading and the the Nicene Creed and the hymns that we've sang um, and using it to uplift us and um, just help us see the joy and the goodness that we have in God. Um, So this past week, if anybody watches the live stream uh, Bible study through the church's website... I was blessed and I was privileged to to get to teach and lead the study for this week. And the scripture that we focused on came from this very same chapter that we're looking at this morning. And in verses 22 through 28, uh, we looked at the promise that Jesus gives his people in the form of a command and an exhortation. He promises us that we don't have to worry. Jesus says, don't be anxious and we looked at the range of that command, uh, that it's not limited to just some parts of our life or uh, some areas or for some people, but it extends into every area and to all parts of our life and our being. We don't have to be anxious about anything is a is claim that he's making. But we also saw the warnings that Jesus gives through that very same command. And it's the warning to, to not be like the rich man in the parable. If you go back to verses 16 through 21, you'll read about him. And this rich man worried over the business of his material wealth, but he cared very little about the things and the business concerning his soul. And in doing so, um, as we mentioned, he earned the title of fool. And the warning implied by Jesus' command to not be anxious was a warning to not be like the rich fool Number one, practiced idolatry as he he worshipped his wealth over over God. And then secondly, he was a fool because of his bad theology. He didn't believe that God um, providentially provides for his children, um, his creation in general, but his children and his people especially. And then the last thing that we, we took note of was the motivation for us to pursue God's command or exhortation to not be anxious and this promise to believe that promise that that is encapsulated when Jesus says don't be anxious the, pro- the promise that we don't have to worry and so we looked at the motivation and we said that there was two things number one um, our motivation for for not being anxious and taking Jesus at his word was the simple fact that being anxious is just illogical and it really makes no sense. When you stop and you think about it and you, uh, you consider what it entails, it's illogical. But secondly, and more importantly, Jesus himself, we said, is our motivation for trusting him when he says, don't be anxious. And so because of the, um, the for myself, the overwhelming encouragement that I got from that study, it's timeliness, and um, also because as I, as I looked in chapter 12, I was just in awe of Jesus as he breathed out um, unmatchless wisdom. And um, as he he continued to, to give us promise after promise, um, I decided to just kind of park, put the car in park um, and sit here for a bit in chapter 12, um, which is how we end up on verse 32. Um, and if you would, please read with me. This is God's word. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Again, amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, Now, now I got to mention that I would be doing poor homiletics and even hermeneutics um, if I didn't clearly state the the point of this proposition in verse 32. So to be uh, faithful to the text I should state explicitly that Jesus is just reassuring his followers in the verse that we just read. And he's doing that in light of his exhortation. If you read throughout chapter 12 um, and leading up to this verse, he's telling us to abandon um, our anxious pursuit of earthly riches in exchange for uh, the pursuit of heavenly treasure. And so Jesus gives these words in verse 32 as reassurance to his people. Because he's telling them, he's telling us to go, that, that what we go and seek, he's reassuring us that we're going to find it. Seek the heavenly treasure, abandon the pursuit of anxious, earthly uh, riches. But I want to look at this passage from a slightly different angle. You see, in this verse, Jesus also reveals some truths about himself. Um, without even saying it, and then also in doing that, he confirms some truths about the Christian faith. And these are truths that opponents um, sometimes debate. The lost try, they try to deny it, and hell tries to distort. So quickly for this morning, three things that I think Jesus reveals about himself um, in just this one sentence. And we'll go right to it. Number one, as we read, Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus is telling us um, something without even telling us. The first thing is that Jesus is not a universalist. He's not a universalist. He's too particular. Jesus came at a particular time and he was born in a particular place. And Jesus had a particular mission to save particular people. People. So, no matter how the opponents or unbelievers try to spin it, no matter uh, what the enemy tries to purport, Jesus was not, and last I checked, still is not, a universalist. Now, before I go on to demonstrate how that is true from just the one verse that we read, let me quickly explain what a universe, what, what universalism is, and um, I'm going to give the simple version because. Honestly, it can be very complex. And uh, you'll see in just a second, you have Unitarian Universalist or Unitarian Universalism, which um, includes people who may profess atheism, agnosticism, um, to New Age spirituality, even Islam, and Christians. And then you have Christian Universalism. Um, and to confuse things a little more, you can further divide those between um, qualified or unqualified universalism and even potential universalism. So I think that there is a, a benefit uh, to just being concise when it comes to, divi- to defining this term. So the plain and simple definition, as plain and simple as we can get, universal, universalism is the belief that ultimately um, everyone in the end, will be saved. And a person who holds to this this view is therefore what we call a universalist. Some universalists think that people will walk straight into heaven. They're already saved. They've already obtained salvation. Some universalists um, believe that God will rescue them out of hell. And some believe that after this life, there's nothing at all, so there's nothing to be rescued from. Now, as Christians it's, and Christians who are grounded in the faith, it's easy to, to, to criticize that belief system, system and even the people um, who would hold it. But if you really think about it, if you're fair and you give it some thought, you'll see that there's a legitimate reason why this ideology would be alluring and so attractive to a person. See, it provides what any decent human being would want and even guarantees what some of us have probably uh, prayed for at one point of time in our life or another. And it's that none of our friends, none of our family members, nobody that we love or care about would perish. The whole world is saved through the view of a universalist. Before she was she was saved, my grandmother um, was a Jehovah's Witness, and um, we I can remember ha- I can remember um, um, I can remember having uh, the people in our front room uh, doing a Bible study with her, and I'd sit in and listen sometimes. And um, you know, I thank God that my mom introduced me and my siblings to, to God at a very young age. So as far back as I can remember, I just always remember having a conviction of the things of God and God himself and a guilt for sin at the youngest age. So I'm not one of those who can remember when they actually, when, when they experienced regeneration and was saved. I just, as far back as I can remember, I just always remember having that conviction and, and thinking of God. Um, but there were times when I would, and, and, and because of that, there were times when I thought about death as a child, a young child, and hell, and eternal torment. And it would, um, it would grieve me as a young boy. And I don't know if it was uh, one of my, my, my brothers. It probably had to be my younger brother because he got in the most trouble. Um, and I, I thought about him a lot. But this one particular day, I was thinking about the thought of, I'm guessing it was him, um, in hell. And I was torn. And my grandmother, she must have saw me, and she asked, what's wrong? And I told her, um, you know, I'm just, I don't want my brother to go to hell. And she told me, well, you know what? It's okay, because, um, you know, people don't really go to hell when they die. Um, she basically taught me one of the doctrines that the Jehovah Witness believe in, um, which is basically annihilation. After this, you just sleep. There's an eternal sleep and darkness. And She told me, you just close your eyes and you'll, you'll just be asleep the whole time. And that brought, as, as erroneous as that is, if I'm honest, that brought me so much comfort to hear that. And so you could imagine the, as we said, the allure of universalism in saying that everybody's Saved and a false sense of hope and comfort that comes with it. Now, Christians are not particularist, which is the opposite of a universalist. We're not particularist because we lack the desire of seeing the whole world saved if it were possible. And we just want people to go to hell. We see the very desire for wanting the multitude saved. When the Apostle Paul in, in Romans, the beginning of chapter 9, He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience, it bears me witness by the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. And brothers and sisters, we share in Paul's anguish over the thought of just one person going to hell, suffering eternal damnation, cut off from God and Christ. But even still, as tempting and as alluring as it may be, we reject universalism because it clearly goes against what the scriptures teaches us. And that brings us back to our passage for this morning, where Jesus himself rejects the heresy of universalism by simply saying, fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Again, these words are reassurance and a promise of an inheritance. But for who? Who is this promise for? Who will inherit this kingdom that Jesus is promising and reassuring us that as we go through this world fighting uh, to give up the riches or the pursuit And the anxious obsession with gaining the world's riches, uh, to gain the, the, the heavenly things, he reassures us with this. Who's being reassured here? Who's this promise for? Who will the kingdom be given to? Not everyone, brothers and sisters. Not everyone. Not the entire world. Not even an entire race. Jesus is exclusive. And he is particular here. These words are for his little flock. The gift of the kingdom is for the children, as it says, the children of the Father. Jesus is excluding some people, and he's making it clear that everyone is not included here. And we have to assume, since Jesus is wisdom personified, that he was uh, he was very careful and he was very aware of the words that he chose when he said this. He knew when he used little what he was talking about and what he was referencing. And if you're a universalist, unlike Jesus here, um, you might think that it's ironic, the choice of an adjective that Jesus uses when he says little. How can the flock of Jesus be little if, as a universalist would believe, the whole world is going to be saved? We're all God's children, so we all must be his flock. How can he say that this flock is little? The world is big. And then even um, Luke, at the beginning of the chapter, if you go back to chapter 1, Luke tells us that the crowd, who's gathering, who hears this? Jesus isn't just talking to his disciples verbally, explicitly. There's more people here. And Luke tells us at the beginning, in verse 1, he says, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people, so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples. So there's a crowd here who Jesus is talking to. And it numbers well into the thousands, yet he says, do not be afraid, do not fear, fear not, my little flock. And for the universalists, there's an irony here. But see, Jesus is showing us that just because people gather together with God's sheep, to hear their shepherd speak, that doesn't mean that all of those people are numbered among the flock. The shepherd knows this truth better than anybody. Turn with me to, to Luke chapter 10, i I'm John chapter 10. In the gospel of John, the 10th chapter, we'll read verses 24 through 30. Here's what Jesus says. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them. I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name. Bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Saint Jesus is not naive. He knows that just because many people are gathered around him, even here in in John chapter 10, they don't hear him. They're they're physically there, but it's as if they're they're not present. It didn't mean that all of the people who were there belonged to him. He knew this then, he knows this now. And it's sad to say, just because people join join in and direct prayers to God when calamity happens, when the world is turned upside down and leaders of nations call for prayer, just because people join in to those prayers, it doesn't mean that their hearts have been softened by God and he hears every single one of those prayers. Just because the church is filled up to capacity, We don't take for granted that those seats, every one of them are occupied by a person who has been regenerate and redeemed by God. We pray that that's the truth, but we know that more than likely that's not the case. And even though that there are morally upright people who walk in this world, and most people can check off some good deeds that they've done each week, even though that's the case, we... We know Jesus is not a universalist, and neither are we or should we be. But what does this leave us? Do we just bask in in the fact that we're saved and we got in? Well, no. Because Jesus is a universalist, here's what that means. Number one, because he's a universalist, as we said, neither should we be. Because he's not a universalist, neither should we be. But then also, because Jesus is not a universalist, Here's what you should do today, saints, and you can do it right now. You should start to view his choosing of you day in and day out. Just think about the fact that you have been saved and start to view his choosing of you as a true gift of immense grace. And take joy in it. the fact that he He chose you because there was nothing special about us. So that must mean that there's something special about him. He's gracious. But then thirdly, because Jesus isn't a universalist, here's what we got to do. We must preach the gospel in the pulpits, when we talk about the things of God, when we look at the scriptures with friends and family. We have to preach the gospel, and we should be motivated to evangelism so that the people in this world can be saved. So the first thing that we see in this sentence, this one proposition where Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is the father's uh, good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Without saying it, Jesus just said he's not a universalist. But then there's something else that he says. Number two, Jesus, he also says that he's not a legalist. Now, again, without getting into um, too much of a a technical definition, the basic sense of, of legalism. Is the idea that we can earn God's favor or we can continue to earn God's favor and even keep that favor. Once we've earned it, we can keep it by the things that we do and by how we perform. Legalism is the reason people get baptized 20 times. It's the reason we have uh, rededication services, and I grew up attending them. And it's the reason that we walk walk down the aisle each Sunday. Because we feel that there's something new that we have to do. Legalism is also, and this is where it gets dangerous, legalism is the trick of Satan nonetheless. You know very well that Satan, if he had his way, Satan would prefer thousands of churches throughout the world, on every corner, filled, um, filled up to capacity, always making the budget and going over everything running well and even peace among the, the people in there. As long as they preach legalism, he would prefer that over no churches at all because legalism does not save. Legalism cannot save. I think about, um, there was a time and I don't know, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know I don't know how this happened, but I was with my mom, and it was a Saturday, and I guess she was running her her Saturday errands, and we were at a a bank, parked at a bank, and a family member of mine pulled up, my aunt pulled up, and for some reason, I, I guess looking back, I was excited. Again, I was young, very young, and I must have been just so excited to see her. You know how kids get sometimes when company comes around and you got to tell them, stop showing off. It was one of those moments. I was excited and I see her pull up next to us and I roll down the window and I, I scream out her name and I don't know how, I don't know why, but I, I call her some names that were very inappropriate. Again, I don't know why. Now my mother, to this day, I've never heard her say a curse word. It's just how she how she is. So that was below her standard. And that was her law. And I had transgressed it at that point. And the first thing that she did her eyes got big and she asked, "Where did you hear that from?" And then the second thing that she did, she told me that when we got home, she was going to wash my mouth out with soap. And I was terrified. And it was at that point with the sin kicked in and I tried to think of the most manipulative thing I could do to try to earn her favor back. And I said, you know what? And I remember this so vivid. Um, I'm just going to stare at this one spot in the glove compartment in front of me and maybe she'll look and see, she'll feel sorry for me because I'm not gonna move, I'm not gonna flinch. I'm just gonna look there and she'll see how sorry I am. And it didn't work. It was done. I, I lost her favor. I had transgressed her law. And only outside help or her being gracious to me could save me at the, that point. There was nothing I could do to avoid her wrath. And I'll tell you how the story ends. I, I She's, she's not like God. She's not as good as him. She didn't show me any grace. I got my mouth washed out with soap that day. See, legalism attempts to mask a, a bigger underlying condition. It tries to cover it up. And I think back again. I'm having a lot of flashbacks this morning. When I was in high school, I was a little older. Um, when I was getting ready to enter high school, um, one of the rumors was that when you take P.E., you're going to have to take a shower after, after P.E. is over with. And all, all of, everybody in fifth grade with me, we were all terrified. I didn't even want to choose P.E. as an elective because, man, the fact that we all have to undress and take a shower in front of each other, it, 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 it rattled me, um, But then I I got to high school and I found out that that wasn't the fact. I said it's fifth grade, eighth grade. So I found out that that wasn't the fact. Um, I was at Killian. I attended Killian. And just to let you know, they uh, they used the shower as storage. So there was no way to take a shower. But how I wished that would have been true after the fact. I had P.E. sometime during the morning. I think it was maybe my first class. And you could imagine that after... All of these, um, all of these teenagers had finished sweating. Right, you can imagine what the body does, and because the showers were used as storage, all we all we could do is you know wipe our armpits down, put on a little extra deodorant, maybe use some body spray. But again, I was just trying to mask the underlying problem, and that's a vivid picture of legalism. See, there's a problem with us that affects our inner being. And the idea of legalism is that outwardly, we can do things that God would see, and it would maybe hopefully mask what's really wrong with us. We see it with Adam and Eve. When they first transgress God's law in the garden, and they try to perform, they make these figs, they sew together these fig leaves to cover themselves. What does God do? It's not adequate enough. And God has to step in, and he has to give adequate covering and clothing. Um, Eric Raymond has an article where he mentions why legalism is so bad. He mentions four points, um, and I just want to go through them real quick, and we'll move on to the next, uh, our next and final point. He says, four things. Legalism, the problem with it is that, number one, it promotes unbiblical standards. Like universalism, we don't find it in the scriptures. God doesn't teach it. But then secondly, secondly, legalism promotes performance. Again, the mask to try to cover up the true problem. He, he says, thirdly, legalism promotes division. And we find that throughout the body, where some people, and I had my ear, I actually left these in um, after kind of looking at this point today, just to make a point, maybe I can be an illustration. Um, but it divides, and some people, because... Certain Christians do certain things, there's a division. They won't, they they won't fellowship with them. True Christians. True doctrine, who teach true doctrine. Um, but fourthly, legalism demotes, and this is the most important thing: le- legalism demotes Jesus. Where we can perform and do it on our own, there is no need for a savior. There's no need for outside help. There's no need for God's grace. Jesus Knows his flock, though. We read in John 10 that he knows them, and they know him, and they hear his voice. But Jesus knowing his flock flock also means that he knows who's in that flock, and he knows what's in them. And he knows that none of us, if left, left up to ourselves, have done enough to earn this kingdom that he's promising. In verse 32, he knows that. And so I love how he follows up with the announcement to not fear. He says, fear not, because God, he's going to give you the kingdom, my sheep. He's going to give us what, we, what I know you can't earn. He's going to give it to you. And not only is he going to give it, but look at what else Jesus says. It's his pleasure to give it. Not like the parent who feeds, when my mom fed me that night. I'm sure she did it, not with a smile on her face. She continued to care for me and give me, but it wasn't with pleasure. She wasn't pleased to do it. But God, as sinful as we are, not only does he do it, but he does it with a smile on his face. With joy in his heart, he's pleased to give us the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not a universalist. Neither is he a legalist. And that brings us to the third and final thing that Jesus reveals about himself without saying it. Jesus, he's more than a messenger. Jesus is more than a messenger. And I think it's become cliche to talk about the year 2020 how bad it is, right? 2020 is just a bad year. It's one of those years. And I think people have also found themselves venturing into different things and new hobbies because of everything that's come with this year and the downtime that we have. Um, Same has happened for me. I've gone from teaching in the classroom to teaching exclusively online, um, learning new tools, I've watched Star Wars, the whole saga, every episode. I've always heard about Star Wars and uh, all of these cat phrases, but I never knew what it meant or what it was, and I watched them all. And something else that I recently got into was something I, I said I would never do ever again. I was in a, I got into a social media debate. And it wasn't over politics, it was over religion. And my best friend, who I grew up with, he, he used to call me to back up when he had a problem with a person. This the, Physically, this time he called me. I uh, Thank God he is um, hes a believer. And he called me and said, hey, listen, um, I need you. I need you to have my back. Somebody's talking about my Jesus. Um, I need you to, to, to come on here with me. And we got to stand up for the gospel. Now, he's the type of person I can't talk. When he has his mind made up, he's going to do it. And so I, I went in um, with the intention of trying to just cool the fire and I found myself totally and fully involved and as we engaged in that debate um, the other side I noticed a tactic that they continued to use they didn't go after us necessarily um, they didn't go after um, our, our our faith but they went after um they went after Jesus and it's a common trend that I noticed anytime there's an attack On Christianity, a lot of times it's an attack on Jesus, namely his deity. Because if you really want to want to attack Christianity, the best place to go is to the one who who is Jesus is our faith. He is Christianity. And so, brothers and sisters, maybe you've seen this um, yourself in other religions or from other people where they attack Jesus' deity, and they try to make him less than what he truly is, who he's revealed himself to be. You've heard it all, that he's the brother of Satan. Have you heard that one? Um, That he is the first created being by God, maybe a little higher than man, again, an angelic being like Satan, but the first created. And that's why he's special, because he was the first to be created by God the Father. Some say that he's Michael. He's Michael the archangel. Some give him no name at all. He's just an angel. And then some, they knock him down to the level of of man. And they say that he's just a prophet. He was a good teacher and somebody who we should look at and follow. And as hard as it is to hear as Christians um, such blasphemous things being said about God incarnate, very God of very God, it's nothing new. Jesus has been um, attacked and his person and who he is. It's been attacked since uh, since since he walked the earth. You think about it. If we go to the scripture, uh, we hear a lot of things about Jesus. We hear that he was just the son of a carpenter. That's all. We hear that. um, Some said that he was a man who cast out demons by the help of the ruler of demons. That's who he was. His own family. They called him crazy. And then some again said that no, he's, he's just a prophet, a prophet. He's like um, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. But the most common thing, if we look at it, we see a trend, they 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 take away his deity and they look at Jesus, angel, prophet, who are just messengers of God. He's just a messenger of God. And both the angel and the prophet is indeed a messenger of God. And I guess maybe for those who want to say that he's a little more than man, well, maybe they'll consider him an angel. It's a spiritual being, but still just a messenger. And for those who say, ah, that's a little too much, a little too high for us, and they just make him a man. They say he's just a prophet. He's a human being. Angels, when we look at angels, They have a unique role that they played in salvific history. In the Old Testament, we see um, the entrance of Eden being guarded by angels, and even though those angels aren't recorded as having spoken any words, the message was clear, you cannot enter. We see angels appearing to Abraham, three of them, before the destruction of Sodom Sodom and Gomorrah. We see angels also appearing to Zechariah to announce the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, whose birth was announced by an angel, Gabriel, to Mary. So angels have a unique role in the scriptures and in salvific history. And at some point, uh, angels were worshipped and began to be worshipped, until this day still are. And then prophets. Prophets also played an important role as we look at the history of salvation, Samuel, we see he bridged the gap between um, the judges and the the monarchy and the kings. Uh, We see Elijah, the miracle worker, standing up against the Canaanite god, Baal. And then we see John the Baptist, the last of the prophets. And we can't forget, last but not least, Moses. Moses, the great prophet who led God's people out of bondage and out of slavery. Prophets have been Greatly revered in scripture. Angel and both prophets are unique. But in the end, brothers and sisters, they're just messengers. And no matter how much you try to equate Jesus with these beings, Jesus has revealed that he is more than a messenger. Now, there's one angel we encounter throughout the Old Testament who is different than the rest, an angel who, when people encountered him, if you remember, they fell down sometimes and worshiped this angel as God. And he didn't think twice or felt the need to correct them. He brought good news to Hagar in Genesis chapter 16. He was among the three of the angels that we mentioned who visited Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he was the one who stayed while the other two were sent. He's the angel that appeared. He's the angel of the Lord that we read of who was even worshipped and appeared to Jacob and Moses. And who is believed to be the pre-incarnate Christ. So there is a sense in which we can speak, speak of Jesus as the angel. He is without a doubt the prophet who is greater than Moses. He did bring us good tidings and a great announcement, a good message. And he did say that he only spoke what the father told him to speak. But saints, Jesus is more than just a messenger. He's not simply the mouthpiece of God the father and for God the father. And Jesus boldly claimed that he and the father were one. They were equal. When he says, fear not, little flock. See, he's not speaking like Moses spoke to Pharaoh when Moses said, let my people go. Because Moses spoke the words, but he had to wait on God to do the work. Saints, Jesus, he is the work. He knows that the Father will give us the kingdom. And he knows this. Not, he will give us the kingdom with, with exceeding joy. And he knows this because his substitutionary and his atoning work on that cross and in the righteous life that he lived guarantees it. And so here, we have good news. Jesus says, fear not. We have good news that though we've, we've transgressed God's law perpetually, over and over again, and we've done it to levels, and depths that we're either sometimes oblivious to, we don't even realize that we're sinning. Or most times we're too ashamed to even admit, too guilty to, to speak on. Yet in those conditions, here's what we hear from Jesus. He says, fear not. And this doesn't come from the lips of a, a subservient angel or from the mouth of a human prophet, but it's from the mouth of God himself the one who was able to forgive sins brothers and sisters Jesus is not a universalist he knows that not everybody will be saved not everyone is a sheep and Jesus is not a legalist he doesn't tell us to work our way into this kingdom Even though there are some who won't be saved, the message is for all to hear, and whosoever will come and hear can come into this flock. And he doesn't tell us that we have to work or do anything to get in, but he gives us a message. And what is that message? It's a message given by him, but he's more than a messenger. It's a message about him. He's the subject of that message. He's the object of of our faith. He saves. And if anyone would trust in him, anyone who's listening, if you have trusted in him, then know that you are in that flock and you can't be pulled out. If anyone would hear the voice of the shepherd, then you can join that flock. Fear not. It's God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father,